0: Before I get into my message this morning, I did want to update you on a a few things. Uh, First of all, is after our service this morning, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper. After my message this morning, you might want to be preparing your hearts for that. I will even pray to that end that the Lord would prepare our hearts to rejoice in the Lord, that His body was crucified for our sins Uh, Another announcement I want to make is uh, just to give you an update. Some of you might know, some of you might not know, Becky Reet is in the hospital right now in Madison. She has been preliminarily diagnosed with uh, leukemia. And uh, so that will have some implications in the Reits and the Reet family. I want to begin by praying even for them. Um, Yvonne and I were up to see them last night. And, um, you know, that the gravity of things haven't really hit them. Uh, Becky, you know, is um, not liking the hospital, but having a, a joyous attitude and perspective through that. And I would encourage, especially children, maybe to give her a call. Uh, when we arrived, the nurse said, oh, your friends have finally arrived. Because she was just waiting and hoping and expecting. So you might give them a call if you want to come and visit, especially children might be a, an encouragement to her. And also, we always want to pray for the work in Nepal. You know, soon the the land that we bought them, they'll start building a a wall around the land um, we bought them to build their church on eventually. So, let's start my message this morning. I want to pray for those things before we begin. Let's pray. Lord, all that we do at Rock Valley Bible Church is centered around the cross of Christ It is because He came and lived and died and rose again in three days that we are here this morning. It's because of His substitutionary sacrifice for our sins that we have hope. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with His love He befriend thee. And in Christ Jesus, on the cross, in His love, He has befriended us. And so, Lord, I would pray for my message this morning that might stir our hearts even to love Christ in a greater way. That we might celebrate the Lord's Supper with cheerfulness and gladness and rejoicing, knowing that it's our sins that were nailed to the cross. And that in Him we can rejoice, never having to face the condemnation of Your wrath upon us again. And so, Lord, use my message this morning to stir in that way. As we think about our body, we do pray this morning for Becky Reit. Lord, I think of a a little body of an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old being um, stricken with cancer. And each of us parents can even think about what it would be like to have our own child. Been diagnosed with leukemia, and I think about even speaking with Dirk, praying with him in the hospital room, of, of thinking of perhaps implications of this for years to come, of constant treatment, seeking to rid Becky's body of the cancerous cells. And Lord, we would pray now for your mercy and grace upon the family. I, I pray for Becky, I thank you for her attitude among things. And I pray even especially as chemotherapy will probably start next week and she will perhaps feel sick and nauseous, I pray You'd give her a measure of grace. God, to trust You and Your goodness and Your kindness through these things. And I pray especially also for Dirk and Nancy, who will have much responsibilities, who will spend much time in the next coming months, Lord, with Becky and I, would pray, Lord, that You would strengthen them. I pray that we as a church would rise up to serve them. Even As Adriana mentioned our prayer time this morning of um, putting together some meals to help them. would pray that there would be an overabundance of people in this ser- church longing to, to serve them, helping with babysitting, helping with cleaning perhaps, helping with food. Lord, to show our love to the reeds, Father, for they have shown their love to us in many, many ways. We do also want to keep the world in our mind. And particularly here at Rock Valley Bible Church are focus upon the church in Nepal. Lord, I pray for the church in as They think soon after the harvest of erecting a wall which would give them the boundaries of their church building. I pray that You would encourage the church in those things. I think of what a hostile community it is in which they worship. How much different it is here we have been founded loosely in Christianity 250 years ago many of the founding fathers at least acknowledged God some of them devout Christians and yet Nepal is a Hindu kingdom and one percent perhaps of the of the country is Christian and so we pray for the light the gospel to shine forth there in Bakunde the church that is dear to our hearts, we want it to continue to stay dear. We pray that You would help them and support them. Pray for the pastor, Suri Lal. May he continue to be encouraged and faithfully labor on. I think even of the children that have been taken into a home of a, a man whose wife and daughter died in a mudslide. We pray even that You might raise up there even a, a, an orphan's home for orphans who are neglected, that the church there might show forth its love, um, the love of Christ to orphans and widows especially. And now, O Lord, I pray that even You would anoint this message here this morning. May the words that I speak convict the hearts that need to be convicted. May it encourage the hearts that need to be encouraged. And in all things, may it point us to Jesus Christ, to whom alone deserves all glory and all honor and all praise. Amen. Well, I want to begin my message this morning by, by reading from the first chapter of this book. It's a book I've read that I've been impacted by and encouraged by. Joshua Harris, maybe some of you are familiar with this writer. He wrote, um, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And um, he wrote this book, Stop Dating the Church. It's his own testimony. He used to date the church. And he's now the pastor of Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland. And his message is to fall in love with the family of God. It's the subtitle. I want to begin this book for you. Chapter 1. Can this relationship be saved? What we miss when we date the church. So, Jack and Grace met through a mutual friend. From day one, they seemed to be the perfect match. Grace was everything Jack had wanted. She was beautiful, outgoing and caring always there when Jack needed her. For the first five months, they were inseparable. Jack could hardly think of anything but grace. He didn't need to look further, he told friends. She's the one. Now almost three years have passed. Jack still enjoys the comfort and familiarity of being with grace. But the spark is gone. Grace's flaws seem more obvious. He's not sure he finds her as attractive as he once did. And he's beginning to resent all the time that she wants to spend with him. One night when she asks if they can define the nature of their relationship, Jack blows up. We're together, aren't we? He asks angrily. Why isn't that enough for you? Obviously, Jack isn't ready for commitment. And it's unclear if he ever will be. Have you ever been in a relationship like this? I'm writing this book because I believe God has something better for you. He wants you in a relationship defined by both passion and commitment. But before you can take hold of this wonderful plan, you need to know something about this couple. There are millions of jacks walking around today. And grace isn't a girl. Grace is a church. This morning, I want to ask you one question. I'll ask it probably a dozen times in my message this morning. I want to ask you, do you love the church? Do you love the church? It's the title of my message. It's the one question I want to ask you. Do you love the church? Now, for some of you, this may sound like a, like a strange question. It may be the first time you've ever thought about a question like this in terms of a a relationship with the the church. Maybe you've always seen the church as a a place to be involved in in activity for Sunday morning. as a a place where lots of activities come upon, but, but a relationship, a love relationship might be new to you. Perhaps this question comes to you as foreigners. Do you love your local gas station? Do you love Road Ranger? I mean, you drive up to Road Ranger to get out of your car and you fill up with gas, you clean the windshield, you pay what you go, and then you go on your merry way satisfied your car is filled up and will run for the next week. But certainly you don't love Road Ranger. And many people are involved in the church in the same way. Every week or so, they come to church and fill up with some good worship and, and hear a good sermon, confess their sins and feel a sense of cleanness and pay their dues into the offering box in the back and go on their way satisfied they've been helped with their walk with Christ for the next week or so. But regarding a love for the church, there's none. None. And this morning, listen, I'm not even asking you whether you're involved in the activities of the church. I'm asking you something deeper than that. You may be very involved in the church and yet not have a love for the church. I'm asking you today about your affections. I'm asking you about your emotions and your desire and your commitments and your heart. Do you love the church? Over the next few weeks on Sunday mornings, I'll be directing your attention to the Church of Jesus Christ. Each week we're going to ask a different question. About four or five weeks or so, and, and this week the question is simple. What's my question? Do you love the church? In fact, this question is so crucial. Then we have a little gift for you this morning. We have a package for you, a gift from Rock Valley Bible Church to you. There's someone in the congregation who graciously has purchased books for every family in the church. So we want to give this to you. We've thrown a a CD on the back, preached by Joshua Harris. Kind of gives a good introduction to this book and his heart for that. So after the service, I invite you to come up and take one of these for your family and read them. And this isn't just for moms and dads. I would say you children as well. can read this book. High schoolers, junior hires will find no problem reading this book. It's it's very easy to read. It's very short. I mean, you look at it. It's one of these um, whatever small book, big impact, small book, big impact kind of books. Certainly can read it, especially all you high schoolers. Absolutely, uh, junior hires probably. And for those of you, perhaps, who can read at at that kind of level, for sure, maybe ask your parents to read that book for you. I think it will be profitable and helpful for you. As you read it, I want you to ask yourself the question, right? Do you love the church? And down through church history, there have been many who have loved the church. Many. Timothy Dwight, the grandson of Jonathan Edwards, wrote those great lyrics, I love thy church, O God, her walls before thee stand. Dearest the apple of thine eye, engraven on thy hand. For her my tears shall fall. Talking about the church. For her my prayers ascend. To her my cares and toils be given, till toils and cares shall end. Beyond my highest joy, I prize thy heavenly ways. Her sweet communion, solemn vows, her hymns of love and praise. These are the words of a person in love with the church. Timothy Dwight just says, "I love thy church, O God." He says, "Beyond my highest joys I prize the church's heavenly ways." Speaks about a person in love with the church. He says speaks about actions, right? He tells of falling tears. He tells of ascending prayers. He tells of care and concern. He tells of loyal Faithful labor and toil until the end of time. Timothy Dwight loved the church. I read this week of one of the church reformers whose name was Menno Simons. You ever heard of his name? You heard of his name? Menno Simons? Starter of the Mennonites. Right? The Mennonites followed after him. He labored long and hard through his years for the church and on his deathbed he said that nothing on earth was as precious to him as the church. Because Menno Simons loved the church. This past week, I listened to a message John MacArthur preached entitled, Why I Love the Church. He went on for over an hour, giving several reasons why he loves the church. He spoke of the promise that Christ has given to build the church. In that sense, the church would be triumphant. He spoke of the high cost in purchasing the church. It cost Jesus His own blood. He spoke of a way in which the church is the only expression of heaven. I mean, where else on the planet do you have the redeemed of the Lord worshiping Christ? It's only in the church. And sadly, many churches are trying to get away with that. Or it's not the redeemed of the Lord singing praise to Him. John MacArthur loves the church. I could easily preach a message like that because I love the church of Jesus Christ so the reason I'm a pastor is because I love the church. I loved the church before I was a pastor. I longed to see it built and grow and flourish. And the purpose of my message this morning is to see you involved in that same love as well. But as much as I love the church, as much as John MacArthur loves the church, as much as Menno Simons loves the church, as much as Dwight, Timothy Dwight loves the church, there's one who loved the church more than all of them combined. Do you know who it is? Jesus Christ loved the church more than anybody else has ever loved the church. Open your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at three simple verses. Get one point from each verse. This passage of Scripture is as clear an expression of any in the Bible that has... Explains Jesus' love for the church. Now in the context, Jesus is talking about husbands loving wives. But in communicating how a husband ought to love his wife, he first sets the standard of Christ loving the church. My purpose this morning isn't to um, deal with marriages. That can be for another time. I save that for another day. This morning we're dealing with the church. So as I read from Ephesians chapter five verses 25 through 27, I want you to focus your attention upon the extent to which Christ Jesus loved the church. Ephesians 5:25 says, "Husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word." that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. We see in verse 25 the expression there of Christ's love for the church. It says that Christ loved the church. Now, the main argument of my sermon this morning is this. If something is precious in the heart of Jesus... Ought it not to be precious in your heart as well? I mean, as believers in Christ, we are called to love Jesus. And I would say further than that, we are called to love the things that Jesus loves. In verse 23, we see that Jesus is called the head of the church. It means that the church is to be subject to Christ in all things. And this goes far beyond mere externals. It deals with the heart as well. It's glad. Heartfelt submission to the Lord is what's being talked about here. And the only way to fulfill the true intention... Of Ephesians 5.23 is to so love Jesus that His affections become your affections and so that you start to love the things that He loves and your life gladly is lived in subjection to Jesus because the very things that He wants and desires are the very things that you want and desire. That's what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. It means that you love Him and you love everything about Him. It means that you love the things that He loves. It means that you seek to live a life pleasing to Him. And there ought to be nothing that He loves that you don't love. And there ought to be nothing that He hates that you don't hate. And there ought to be nothing that He desires that you don't desire. And there ought to be nothing that He wants you to do that you aren't willing and desires to do. This is nothing more than the will of God, right? Wanting to follow after the wants, the desires, the will, the expression of God. And if Jesus loved the church has a clear statement of affection and desire for the church, I would contend that we need to love the church as well. And so, do you have a love for the church? You know, there are many reasons why people don't love the church. For some, they simply haven't been taught about the church and thus they think it's not so important in their own lives. Ah, church, whatever. For others, the church has never been the focus of their own spiritual growth. Perhaps they were saved through some exciting campus ministry or perhaps through some nationwide Bible study program or through listening to some preacher on the radio. And and the source that saved them oftentimes then becomes the source that continues to nourish them. They always have a love for that campus ministry or or they have a love for that particular Bible program or they have a love for this preacher on the radio. And that's the thing that, that nourishes them and helps them and cherishes them. But they have forgotten about the church because they've never had a love for it. For others, they've had a bad experience in the church, which has led to a poor taste in their their mouths. (laughs) Oh, when the husband was first married, boy, did he love his wife. And they used to love each other. They used to love the church, but then had some things that, boy, marriage simply can't get over. And they don't love their wife anymore because of this and that and this and that. And so also with the church. People in the church have said hurtful things. They've been unfaithful to their promises. They've demonstrated themselves to be hypocrites. They've been silent in times of need. They haven't met my expectations. Unless people don't love the church. Well, let me ask you this question to help distill some of these notions. What did the church look like when Jesus died for the church? What did the church look like? Was a church filled with righteous, sinless people? I don't think so. My first point. Love sacrifices. So we read about Christ. He demonstrates His love. Right? That He gave Himself up for her. I trust you know what that means. It means that Jesus sacrificed Himself for the church. It means that Jesus Christ came down from heaven to live among us to offer His perfect life in place for our sinful lives. He died for us. He died in our place. Now, this wasn't particularly easy for Jesus to do. In fact, it cost Him greatly. It cost Him His life. In Acts 20.28, we read that God purchased the church with His own blood. God's own blood. The blood of Jesus Christ is what purchased the church. We read in 1 Peter 1 about how precious that blood is. And I'm telling you this morning that it was difficult for him to do. This past week, I read a sermon preached by Edward Payson. I want to read for you three paragraphs from this sermon that seeks to describe in a more picturesque way than I'm capable of of the sufferings of Christ and the, just the awfulness of it. He said, "...few things can be conceived of more abhorrent to our feelings than to be delivered into the power of raging, insulting, bloodthirsty foes who will exhaust all the arts of cruelty in tormenting us and mock our dying agonies with scoffs, revilings, and exclamations of savage triumph. What, my friends, could induce you to throw yourself into a dark and loathsome pit filled with deadly serpents, scorpions, and other poisonous and disgusting reptiles all brandishing their envenomed stings and eager to devour you. Yet this world into which the Son of God voluntarily descended for our sakes was far more hateful, dreadful, and loathsome to His holy nature than such a pit would be to us. And the poisonous rage of serpents and scorpions is far inferior in malignity and in the sufferings which it can inflict to that rancorous enemy which exists in the heart of sinners to which Christ gave himself up. Hope you get a sense of the cost of the love, of the, of the sacrifice of Christ. And all I can say is that what wondrous love is this? What wondrous love is this that would cause the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul? It's only love that pours itself out for undeserving sinners. Why did Jesus go through such incredible sufferings? Simply because He loved the church. It's not because the church was lovely. It's not because the church was deserving. It's not because the church never hurt Him. Rather, it's because of His love for the church. This is the point of the book of Hosea, is it not? Hosea was told to go and love a harlot. Hosea went and did so, married a woman named Homer. Gomer. Not Homer. Gomer. After giving birth to three children, Gomer left the marriage and continued in her marital unfaithfulness. And God said in Hosea chapter 3, go after her and take her again. That's what Hosea did. He had to purchase her freedom, probably from a house of harlotries with a few shekels of silver and some grain but it's His love towards her that went to buy her. And that's what God did in the church. It was God's faithful love to Israel. Though Israel turned aside and been unfaithful to the Lord, yet the Lord remained faithful to them and just so did Jesus love His church. The church isn't made up of well-deserving people who deserve the Lord of the universe to come down and die for them. On the contrary, the church is made up of undeserving people who deserve to perish in their sins. And yet it's the love of Christ that For the church that compelled Him to come and die in our place. And so when you think of your own heart towards the church, do you know anything of this sacrificial love that Jesus demonstrated here? In other words, are the things that you do among the church body that's a sacrifice to you? Or is the church all convenience for you? See, the root of sacrifice is being others-centered. The the root of sacrifice is focusing upon others. And that's what Jesus did, right? When He died, He died for others. It was this others-focus that He had. But in your involvement with church, is it convenience-centered? Or is it others-centered? Do you involve yourself in the church to the extent that it helps moi? Or do you involve yourself in the church for the help of other people? That's what it means to love the church. That's what it means to sacrifice for the church. I mean, isn't this what true love is about? Delighting in the object of your love. Aren't tensions caused in your marriages when you allocate an undue amount of attention to something else other than your spouse? Can you testify with me about that? Why? It's because you're sacrificing and you show your love for this when you should sacrifice and show your love for your wife. Yes, Christ loved the church? That's what I'm talking about. Are the things in your life that you're willing to choose not to do because you know in doing them, the church which you love will be neglected? Or do you say, you know what? Boy, I'd really like... I'd really like to go do that, and it would be okay to do that. It's not a sin to do that. But you know what? In doing that, I'm going to show my lack of love for the church. You know what? I'm, just, I'm going to sacrifice that, and I'm going to do this because I love the church. Or your actions self-serving, and you pursue after that. Maybe it has to do for you with your time. To be sure, all of us, we busy up our schedules to the max. I mean, which one of you are not busy? I think we're all busy with things. When you step back and look at how you spend your time, is there a sacrifice that you ever give to spend your time with the people of the church? Or is your time based solely upon what you want to do when you want to do it? When you have a free evening, does it ever cross your mind to say, you know what, how can I serve a family in the church? When you think through your activities on Saturday evening, does it ever cross your mind to say, you know what, Maybe I'll sacrifice tonight. Won't stay up and watch that movie so I get to bed so I can come to church for the prayer meeting at 8.45. Maybe you don't come because you just don't have a love for the church. You don't have a love to pray with the people of the church. Maybe it has to do with your finances. If you take out your checkbook and say, "Where's your money go? Does it all go for yourself? Are the things you sacrifice you give to the church? Or is all your church giving convenient giving? Do you know anything of sacrificial giving? Do you have an abundance? Do you see someone in need? Do you give it to them, or do you just keep it for yourself? Now, if you look at your life and you say, "You know what, Steve," as you talk about these things, you know I don't think I don't think I love the church. My exhortation to you this morning is not give more money to the church. My exhortation to you this morning is not, well, spend more time with the people of the church. That's not my exhortation. That's like dealing surface level. I'm not interested in a crowd of people at Rock Valley Bible Church. I'm getting at something more foundational and fundamental. If you don't love the church, I say this. Say, you know what? I need to love the church. And I'm pressing you toward your heart and your affections. I'm telling you to love the church because, listen, when you love the church, sacrifice will be made delightfully and cheerfully. Parents, what is it that will cause you to change thousands of dirty, smelly diapers? What is it that will cause you to prepare thousands of meals? What is it that would cause you to clean up, in our household, Hundreds of thousands of messes that the children leave behind. What is it that, that causes you to spend thousands of, tens of thousands or hundred thousand dollars over the span of a lifetime for your child? Feeding them, bathing them, providing them school supplies, helping them. What is it? I think it's only love that does such a thing. A parent willingly does this. Why? <laughs> and is, a, is it a sacrifice for your child? Not at all. That's what you want to do. What is it that causes a grown man to subscribe to Golf Magazine and to spend hundreds if not thousands of dollars on his golfing equipment, to pay a professional golfer to teach him how to golf, to go out in the springtime when it's cold and rainy to hit this white ball around to be frustrated trying to get it in this hole? To, to pay the, the dues of the country club, to, to golf clear on into the fall, to go to an indoor driving range in the wintertime, neglecting his love family. What is it that causes him to do that? Just love for the game. There's no sacrifice there. So I'm not telling you to sacrifice to hurt for the church. I'm saying, you know what? Love the church. And then everything will flow from that. Seeing what's precious and dear in God's sight your sacrifices then will be acceptable to God being offered with proper motives and proper hearts with affections toward God. How many times does God say in the Old Testament, sacrifice an offering I didn't desire? It's a broken spirit that I require. Then I will delight in sacrifices. And that's what I'm getting at today. It's not. I'm not talking about your involvement, commitment, activities, busyness of the church. You know, many churches deal on that level. But you know what? God isn't pleased Merely with level and attendance and lots of people doing lots of different things. What God is pleased with, a heart that loves the church and then flows out of that to serve and love other people. That's where God is pleased. And I want God to be pleased in your worship to Him. Certainly, there will be times when you find the people of the church not lovable. But consider the sacrifice of Jesus. It was His love for sinners that caused Him and gave Him reason to die for the church. And so the next time you're hurt by someone in the church, which will happen... Next time you see someone in the church, be a hypocrite. Next time you are disappointed with someone else's actions, remember that the Lord Jesus loved the church when it was sinful. Well, that's my first point. Love sacrifices. My second point, love purifies. I get this from verse 26. That He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. His dying produced a purified church. And this is the glories of the Gospel, right? The death of the righteous one, by the death of the righteous one, the community of sinful ones are cleansed. Those who trust in Jesus are are sanctified. We're justified. We are made righteous. We are forgiven. We are righteous in His sight. That's the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So what Jesus did. By His death, He cleansed the church. The means is by the washing of the water with the Word. There's lots of discussion about this. Some say it's baptism. Some say it's merely symbolic, like Titus 3.5, the washing of regeneration, renewing. Whatever it means, baptism or mere symbolism, it does picture cleansing. It does picture purifying. And we know that such purification comes through faith in the message of the work of a Redeemer. We know that such purification is pictured when an individual is immersed in water. I want to pull from this verse the principle that the one who loves will work to purify the one he loves. Okay? The one who loves will work to purify the thing or object that he loves. A great illustration happened to me about 20 years ago before I was married. Uh, One summer, I was living with a a family in the church and uh, they had a dog. Now, some of you know that you know dogs and me, like we don't have this love relationship between here. I'm not even dating a dog. I don't like dogs, okay? And dogs know this. Uh, We had a dog at our house, what, 10 years ago for maybe... um, maybe a couple weeks. And this dog, every time I walked in, <laughs> they, they talk about animals with this other sense. And this dog, dogs have this other sense. Now, for those of you who love dogs, I, I, I appreciate you and I honor you. I'm not trying to speak down on you. But I'm just telling you my experience with dogs. Anyway, I was living in this place and uh, this dog, this household, got in a fight with a skunk. And um, The reason we knew this wasn't because we saw the fight. Hey, check it out! out There's a dog and skunk going at it. No. It wasn't because we heard the fight. It's because what? We smelled the fight. When the dog walked in the room, we said, something is dreadfully wrong here. And all of us knew that this dog got in a fight with a skunk. Now, what needs to happen next? The dog needs to take a bath. And you know what? Did I have, like, any desire to help giving that dog a bath? Like, zero. (laughs) Like, none. Just put it outside. Let it die is kind of what I... (laughs) I'm sorry for those of you who love dogs. I'm sorry. But you know what I witnessed? I witnessed the owner of that dog um, take the dog outside, care for it, take a hose spray on their rub soap and scrub and scrub and scrub until that dog smelled a bit better. (laughs) Took some time to fully get it out of the system. But you know here's what it is. It's your love for the dog that will cause you to purify the dog. It's your love for another that seek to clean them. Now, obviously, as we think about the interaction among members of the church, we can't atone for the sins of others. It's only Christ Jesus and His sacrifice is capable and sufficient to atone for sins. But there is a way that we can interact with others in the church to deal appropriately with the sin of others. And if we love the church, we'll deal with each other in these ways. I want you to imagine this. Suppose someone in the church sins against you. How are you going to respond? We'll look back at the end of Ephesians 4. Paul tells us, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. In other words, just as Christ has forgiven you and cleansed you and purified you through the Gospel, so you also are to forgive others. And when you do this, you demonstrate your love for the church because you want to Purify the church. And notice the connection in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. We are called to be imitators of God as beloved children. We're called to imitate Christ in his purifying love for others, in forgiving each other, right? Walk in love is what it says in verse 2. Just as Christ loved you, just as Christ loved you, you need to walk in love. And he gave himself up for us. It's the standard of the cross. That compels us to love, and love includes forgiving others, and thus purifying the church. There's some passages that speak of this issue. I think perhaps the, the most clearest is 1 Corinthians 13. We've all heard it many times in marriages. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And many of these characteristics are the things that come out when people sin against one another, right? When someone sins against you, isn't it your response to want to get them back? I've heard some children recently sing this song. I know a song that gets on everybody's nerves Everybody's nerves Everybody's nerves I know a song that gets on everybody's nerves And this is how it goes If you know it, sing it. I know a song that gets on everybody's nerves Everybody's nerves Everybody's nerves I know a song that gets on everybody's nerves And this is how it goes Sing along if you know it. I know a song. Okay, now. That can be pretty annoying, right? Do you know what? Love is patient. Love is patient with people who have annoyances. And it's this point you can show love to this person by patiently enduring their annoyances as Christ patiently continues to ignore your annoyances to Him. I'm not telling you not to confront them. I'm not telling you they, that they aren't annoying. So, there is a place to confront somebody and say, you know what, that's, that's really annoying. And um, that's, that's bothering me a bit. And you know, Jesus tells us that when He says in your Word, you know what, that's, that's annoying to me when you love other idols rather than me. And uh, He gently... Thank the Lord that He gently reproves us and corrects us. But what I'm encouraging today is not to have a conditional love for people. Don't have a love that says, you know what, you are really annoying me and only when you stop doing that will I love you. It's not what Jesus does. He continues to love us in spite of our unfaithfulness. He will tell us graciously, you know what? That is annoying. That is sin. We will continue to be sinful to the Lord. But He's patient with us. And that's the way that love works. And that's the way that purification works. We can go through all of these things in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In fact, i even got several in my notes I've written down. I just want to zero in on one because I think this perhaps addresses how love purifies. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. And I believe it's right here where we become most like Christ in our attitudes towards other people. Someone does a wrong to you and it hurts you very badly. You know what love will do? Love will overlook the offense. Love will not bring it to remembrance to hold it against another. Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's discretion makes him slow to anger. And it's his glory to overlook a transgression. This is the very thing that Jesus has done with us. He has overlooked our transgression. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't simply sweep it under the rug, okay? He paid for the sins that he overlooked. But think about this, though. Is when we overlook a transgression of another member of the church, we're not sweeping it under the rug. We are believing their sin to be atoned for by Christ on the cross based upon their profession of faith. That's what we're doing. And thus, we are purifying them in some sense like Christ purified us. Not being stirred, not provoking, not fighting, not going against. And I say, if you love the church, you will seek its purity. Purity. I've been astonished in recent days thinking about 1 Corinthians. You know anything about the Corinthians? They were an ungodly church. They were a church filled with immorality. They were suing one another. They were following personality cults. There was... All types of offenses going on. Perhaps some idol worship continuing on. At their love feast, they were not loving one another. They were being selfish in their spiritual gifts. Some didn't believe in the resurrection. And you know how Paul dealt with them? 1 Corinthians, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him, Right. He's seeing these Corinthians not as they are on the external sinful, but he's seeing how enriched in Christ they are. He calls them saints. He says, "...in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ..." Who? <laughs> Think about Corinth now. Think about this wicked and sinful church Who shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? He's overlooking their transgressions, looking and seeing them as they are in Christ. Astonishing, and I think it's precisely this, because love purifies. Do you purify the church? Do you love the church? Do you sacrifice? Third thing, not only is a love sacrifice, not only does love purify, but love also cherishes. I get this in verse 27, that he might present, this is right, Jesus cleansed the church that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. The picture we have here in verse 27 is that of a bridegroom awaiting his wedding day. The bridegroom is Jesus. The bride is the church. And Jesus is pictured here anticipating the day when he will have finally have a chance to join with his bride in marital bliss. That is the picture. Use your imagination it is appropriate. In Revelation 19 we read of the marriage of the lamb. Right. This is describing the day in the future Well, Jesus will come rejoicing out of his chamber and claim his bride. And I ask again, who is the bride? It's the church is the bride. And as Jesus anticipates that day, what sort of attitude does Jesus have toward the church? I was speaking with my wife last night trying to say, "You know what, Yvonne? I don't I'm trying to find a word which would Capture this. And we looked at several words. The best we could come up with, the best I could come up with is this word cherish. Jesus we also thought about honor, we also thought about anticipate. We also thought about Jesus loves or glories in or is expecting. But this cherishes is the word I think perhaps is the best. Jesus cherishes the church realizing who the church is. There will be a day when Jesus marries the church. And with perfect love and devotion, Jesus is now consumed with protecting and caring for His bride until that final day. Man, do you remember the day when you asked your wife to marry you? And she didn't become just a girl. She became a fiancé. And do you remember the weeks and months before your marriage... The best word that I can come to describe how you treated your wife is this word cherish. You thought about her. You wanted to be with her. You wanted to do whatever you could do for her. That's what Jesus is doing. He's anticipating this day when He'll be married. He's thinking about the church, wanting to, to cleanse it and and purify it so that it would be holy and blameless so that when the church is someday presented to Jesus, that the church would be in all her glory. In fact, I remember distinctly a, a period of a few weeks of my life I couldn't get Yvonne off my mind. I couldn't. I, at the time, I was in seminary, seeking to finish my degree. And um, I found it difficult to concentrate in class. Thinking, you know, I'm going I'm to get married. I'm going to marry Yvonne Pargett, And I just, my, my, my studies like went Boo! down for that period of time because my mind was so consumed of the, the things that would take place in the near future that all else was helpless. And you know what? I just wanted to be with my wife. I just wanted to be with her as Jesus will someday marry the church, He has a similar anticipation. He is waiting for the day and longing for the day when He'll be with the church fully, without sin. The church will be fully His. And we are called, I believe, to have a similar perspective. If this is Jesus' perspective upon the church, that ought to be our perspective on the church. Now, it changes a little bit because we're not Jesus loving the church. We are the church going to reconcile to Jesus. But, But as the church will someday be the wife of Jesus, there's a certain amount of honor that we ought to give to the church. There's a certain amount of cherishing that we, even as the church, might have. I mean, think about this. I want you to imagine meeting Mrs. Laura Bush, the wife of the president. How would you meet her and treat her? I suspect you'd be very courteous. You'd be very gentle. Realize who she is. I mean, she's married to the most powerful man in the world at this time. Uh, I believe that you would grant her some honor and seek not to offend her. You'd consider it perhaps a privilege to speak with her. So, also with the church. Think about this the church someday will be Mrs. Jesus. Mrs. Jesus. And if you would treat the present's wife graciously and kindly, are you not going to treat the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ, graciously and kindly? Are you going to cherish the church? It is a sad testimony that the church is often known for its quarreling and its bickering and its disunity. Far more than it's known for its love and its unity and its harmony. Is that right? Can you say that? I think it's because people have lost sight of how they need to cherish the church. And love will cherish. I think that's what Jesus was getting at when He said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, so you also ought to love one another. By this, all men will know that you are My disciples. And sadly, the the church is not there. And you know what? When the church is not loved... It brings dishonor to his bride. And to bring dishonor to his bride is a reproach to the bridegroom. Taking this Laura Bush illustration, if you would dishonor her, if you would come to to meet her and just rail on her and just speak about how poorly she dresses or how messy her hair is or how unkept the president's quarters are, that is a reproach against her husband because you are profaning what is her, what is His. And so also, the church fights and bickers and hates one another. It brings reproach to Christ. When such things take place, it's an evidence, I think, that the church has forgotten who they are. They are the loved bride of Christ. And such unbecoming behavior is dishonoring to Jesus Such behavior is unloving toward God's unloving towards the church. And I say, listen, the church, as it says here, is glorious in God's sight. Verse 27. There'll be a day Jesus presents the church in all her glory. And I say, simply say this. Here's my application on this point. Love cherishes. If you cherish something, you want to be around that person. You want to build that person up. You want to encourage them. And I say, when you love the church... Nobody will be able to keep you away from the church. Nobody. When the church gathers, you say, I cherish the church. I want to be there. And when the church scatters, you say, I'm going to where the church is because I love those people. You guys ever do that? You ever been on a a break? Maybe from your work and you just say, I just want to be at home with my wife about the men who were married from went down to Mobile, Alabama, right? Do you ever have feelings, Doug and Dad and Mike? I just want to be home and be with my wife. You guys feel that way? When you love and when you cherish the church, that will be your attitude as well. You say, I just want to be with them. Love sacrifices, love purifies, and love cherishes. If you love the church, you will sacrifice for the church. If you love the church, you will seek the purity of the church. If you love the church, you will cherish the church in these ways. And I challenge you to direct your heart and attention and focus upon your heart. Your attitude towards the church. If Christ Jesus loves the church this much, who are you to be indifferent? Well, one of the ways that we can show our love for the church Is through celebrating the Lord's Supper. Turn over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Here's a church.